I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. Welcome to episode 21 of Sherd's Podcast. My name's Sam Pullum, and we have something slightly different for you today in the form of an interview with Quentin S. Crisp about his new novel, Graves, which has just been published by Snuggly Books. I'll read to you from the blurb. In Graves, Damien, a male nurse and self-styled thanatophile, is in love with death in its purer and more ideal form. However, as he casts around for some authentic way to defy the void of modernity, his thanatophilia is swiftly and insidiously corrupted. Scavenging what materials he can, he works in isolation like a reverse Dr. Frankenstein, wishing to understand the secrets of death, not life, in order to break the narrative power of science over the modern mind. Set against the backdrop of anime-drenched 21st century London, Graves, Quentin S. Crisp's second major novel, is a work of gothic horror that confronts the hard problem of consciousness in a world where it is easier to believe in artificial intelligence than human intelligence. Join me over the next hour and a half as I interview Quentin S. Crisp about his darkly comic and deeply disturbing novel. I hope you enjoy the conversation. First, though, we'll begin with a reading from Graves by the author. An urn finial, grappled by vines at the corner of a stone stairway. Here Damien pauses. The stairs lead to a descending avenue of mausolea. He senses the influences here combining to bring forth one of those moments in search of which all that would otherwise be the savings of his solitary life are spent. People never show more than a casual interest, and he can satisfy that by saying that he loves to travel, which is not exactly a lie. If they were to question closely, they might find the details of that travel eccentric, but they never do. And if it were mere ghoulishness, it might even be the kind of thing to boast of in an internet about me statement. It is so hard to know what is taboo and what is tame these days. Instinct tells him that whatever is hard to understand, whatever hard to explain, remains under the shadow of human suspicion, and the moments he devotes his private time to seeking are ineffable. It is as if his life is dedicated to tracking down the perfect summer breeze. He does not take out his camera yet, knowing from experience that this desire to capture a moment, if hastily indulged, is liable to prevent it. Anyway, there are things photography cannot record. So he halts here, 
with his left hand upon the stone of the balustrade next to the finial, and with something languid and faintly grandiose in his stance, as if he looks down now upon the whole world. But that is precisely why his feet have slowed at this spot, he decides. He is still young, but already he has followed the skittish beam of an attendant's electric torch along the grid of pathways between graves one summer night in Zorshigaya, seen the stone angels and broken columns among the mist-exhaling ivied trees of Highgate, wandered forgetful of all time the citadel park of winged hourglasses at Père Lachaise, where the narrow houses of the dead stand like streets of dovecots in which nest only shadow and silence, listened to the homely tones of the volunteer guide, explaining with familiarity the distinguishing traits of the stacked skulls of St. Leonard's ossuary, been witness to the tribute paid by autumn in fresh reds and yellows, to the spirit of human continuity where the slopes of Kensico are a neat, endless now of monuments and epitaphs, felt warm peace in the scent of pine resin and paraffin as he watched an ant crawl over the marble of a grave in a well-tended site overlooking the Sea of Crete. And already his instincts have been gloriously confirmed by the ten decorated skeletons of the Basilica of Waldsassen, posed and made opulent by Edelbart Eder the goldsmith, for whom death was no barrier to speech. The dazzling encrustations of pearls, rubies, and other myriad jewels on the bones with which this craftsman communed, impressing Damien as the ultimate efflorescence of decay. These are only a few of the treasures densely packing the sepulchral reliquary of his remembrance. In threading the globe as he has with the dotted line of his travel, he has sewn so many such sights and impressions together that the world has become to him one ever-ramifying city, and that one city a necropolis. Such is the view the corner of which he has stepped into at this moment. A visitor to a museum may find the exhibits to be desiccated fragments with not much more interest in them than an average history lesson at school, until, for some reason, a particular bar relief brings back the living breath of a day 2,000 years vanished. For Damien, in his survey of graveyards, crypts and catacombs, things are, to a degree, similar. Not every inscription on every headstone will bring the half-limpid, half-fetid transports with whose nuances he is increasingly intimate. He might view a dozen potter's fields in a row with only the faintest of stirrings, 
But when the feeling comes, anything from frisson to exaltation, the great difference is this. The museum-goer experiences a dead past revivified, but Damien, among the graves, sees even the living present as the slightest portion differentiated by the minimum contrast necessary for anything to be seen at all of a sweeping vista of charnel majesty aeon-tiered beyond vision in arches of interlocked bones. The visitor to a famous city might think of the feet that have trod its thoroughfares through the ages. Damien thinks of how the feet now treading the necropolis of the world are to be added in vanishing to the ages of the buried. That what was no longer is, Damien judges an enigma, apparent yet impossible. That impossibility forms the ground on which the living walk. That they live now who never were before is another enigma, also apparent, also impossible. The two impossibilities mirror each other, so that Damien sometimes sees the dead walking their inverted streets with us their mere reflections. Damien, hand on balustrade, has been, in his mind, teasing loose some knot of summer breeze to unsnag and unleash it. Preoccupied with this subtlety, he has not noticed until now that the urn finial has become a massive, hollow-eyed skull, and all the mausolea below seem to drip with sepulchral fluids, as if decay were an army of snails, and even the trunks of the green-leaved trees are excrescences of death. All things above earth, weird toadstools of necrophagy, all things below earth, the very riches of the kingdom of decomposition, offerings for rebirth more potent than any entombed with Pharaoh. At such moments Damien believes without effort that Adelbert Eder surely did talk with the dead. I'm delighted today to have the writer Quintin S. Crisp as my guest, whose novel Graves has just been published by Snugly Books. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Quintin. Well, thank you for having me on, on the podcast. It's a pleasure. So I first became aware of you as a writer of short fiction primarily, and I, su- I suppose even more specifically as a writer of what might be broadly termed horror fiction, and you've published quite a number of works in this vein. But in recent years, you seem to have been working in a wider range of genres and forms, such as travel writing and poetry and diaries. I was wondering what has led you to this experimentation or changes in form? Yes, um, well... That's a good question. I, I could talk at, at great length here, so I'll, I'll try and keep it reasonably brief. Basically, when I started as a writer at quite a young age, I 
I was interested in fantasy things, really. Um, my, my earliest main influences were, for instance, Tolkien or Lovecraft. And so I wasn't interested in writing about my own life. But in the process of attempting to write fiction, I found that um, you, you always come up against technical <laughs> difficulties. <laughs> Even if it's world building or character building or whatever it is, there, there are difficulties to do with the question of what seems in some sense real or interesting. Interesting because in some sense it's real. So I had to think about that a great deal. And I think part of the result of my thinking about these problems is that I've been concentrating more on everyday reality. Because I, I, I thought of everyday reality as something boring, something to escape from. Mm. But, but the fact that I couldn't, in a sense, escape from it, even in writing fantasy, that somehow you still have to come up against reality, even in, in writing fantasy, made me feel like I had to look at the quotidian again. So that's, that's one thing. But the, the other thing is... I think, an influence of Japanese literature. There are probably two primary influences from Japanese literature in terms of authors that I have. There's Mishima and there's Nagai Kafu. And I think the Mishima influence was stronger for me earlier, where it's everything is kind of glittering and dramatic and, and, and so on. But Kafu is more in the, not completely, but he's more in the I novel, as in I, the first person, the I novel mm-hmm. genre or, or school of Japanese writing. I mean, I think this kind of Japanese writing goes back further than the I novel, really, because you've got diary literature and so on going way back in Japanese literature. Yeah. But he, for me, is a representative in many ways of that aspect of Japanese literature where it focuses on almost on static things in a way it not so much on the dramatic movement mm. and that Kafu influence has been superseding the Mishima influence I, mean, I see <laughs> I, I, I would say in in more recent years uh, which is not to say I won't go back but certainly uh, that's quite strong for me at the moment I should imagine that a lot of our listeners would have heard of Mishima but that uh, perhaps fewer will have heard of Kafu. And I was wondering if you could um, say something about the, the period in which he's writing and if he's associated with a particular school of Japanese literature. Yes. So he was, I can't remember his exact date of birth. If, if I could do the maths, which I won't embarrass myself by attempting. <laughs> but uh, he, he, he died in uh, 1959 at the age of about 80 he, he was going to be 80 that year. I can't remember if he actually had his birthday. So he was born in the um, 19th century, obviously, and his father was some sort of civil servant, educated in the classics and so on. He went to America at around the turn of that century for about four years. His father had sent him to work in a bank over in America because he despaired of him in some way or another, and he thought that this might 
he might make something of him in this way. But mm -hmm. um, while he was in America, well, he didn't begin writing in America, but while he was in America, it seems like he dropped out of his bank job somewhat and he wrote a large number of stories many of them to do with, well, to do with the underside of America at that time, uh, prostitution, difficulties faced by immigrants, uh, all kinds of things like this that he was writing about in that collection. I believe that collection is available in English too, right? That's been translated. Yes, it, it, that's right. It's translated under the title of American Stories. The translator is Mitsuko Iriet, I believe, and... He came back via France. I think his father wanted him to come back directly, but he, he really loved French literature. He wanted to speak French. He went to France. He spent something like eight months there, I think, and he <laughs> wrote Tales of France, a similar kind of thing to the American one, but in France. And when he came back to Japan, these two volumes kind of made his name, but also some of the stories got banned, I think, I seem to recall. For obscenity or? Yes, yes, that's right. So he became famous and or notorious. Some, some of his works were banned for decades, I, I believe. I, I can't remember exactly which ones now. So he his influences are French naturalism and decadence from the Western side of things. Um, of course, there, there's a bit of a clash between naturalism and decadence. This is why I sometimes think he's a figure a bit like Wiesman's. J.K. Wiesman's mm. in a way, but in some ways he's, he's very different. In terms of his Japanese influences, well, for instance, he had a Saikaku, um, the, the Edo writer, the kind of downtown writers. He was very into this idea of the Tokyo downtown culture. Mm -hmm. the ukiyo-e. He, he wrote a, a book on the, the arts of Edo, uh, talking about ukiyo-e prints and kabuki and all kinds of things like this. So he, he was very much interested in, in the, the Japanese tradition, especially as manifest in, in the kind of um, slightly disreputable art of the, the downtown. I mean, for instance, kabuki at the time that it started was thought of as disreputable. I mean, it's thought of as high art now, of course. What you mentioned about this almost static quality of what we find in Kafu. Yes. It's something that I can see in aspects of your writing as well. I, I would say yes. that across each of these different forms in which you're writing, there is a constant, in terms of style, I would say, there's a contemplative character to everything you write and an emphasis on mood and atmosphere that seems to be valued just as highly as the, the telling of the tales. Yeah. Is that something you're very conscious of? Yes. It is. One of the things, one of the reasons for that which goes way back is that when I was really beginning to develop my style, I, I wanted to really reproduce a, a total experience in, in writing somehow, as if it were a, a virtual reality, but not just a physical virtual reality, but with emotions and all kinds of things happening. So I think because of that, I got deeply into quite an introspective way of writing, trying to put the reader right inside somebody's head, 
and also a quite a descriptive way of writing and I didn't necessarily have the balance between that and um, plot mechanics um, but <laughs> I think I, I do tend to value that kind of thing more than plot mechanics but I, I also think I should um, try and strengthen those areas in which I'm weak so I I would like to write things which do have the emphasis on the plot as well, but I, th- I certainly think my st- if I have a strength, then it's in creating these sort of mood pictures, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I should say it's not something that I think of as a weakness in your style at all, rather that it's something that sets it apart from particularly, I suppose, writing within the horror genre, which in some senses you seem to be moving away from, perhaps. I've spoken on this podcast before about a passage in your book, uh, The Paris Notebooks, diaries you kept in in Paris, in which you speak of a kind of almost a tyranny of plot over atmosphere in in mainstream culture. Is that something you still agree with? Yes, I I do. I mean, I suppose... There is a skill, there is a skill to writing a good plot and and the fact that a plot is artificial, so to speak, is not necessarily a a bad thing. We're not necessarily reading a book because we want to, um, we're not considering it as a documentary necessarily, you know. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that plots are artificial, but I don't know, especially with blockbuster films and so on, there's such a, a formula that it is a kind of a tyranny, I think. I, I hate to use this word, but there, I, think there's, <laughs> I think there's something a bit disempowering about the way that, that plot is often used because, I, I, I don't know, maybe I feel like there's a kind of dishonesty to it sometimes whereby nothing matters except whether the, the plot works. For instance, in the same way as in a, a horror film you can get jump scares and so on, and maybe mm. these jump scares work, but there, there's something about bit dishonest about just relying on that kind of thing so there's um, a cheapening quality to a, a very traditional or fixed plot structure like that yeah i think there can be yeah because it, I, I think when it's pr- prioritized as something hooky as it were mm. <laughs> the, the, i think that is cheapening and it's you know it's like the clickbait thing that the plot can work on that principle where where it's just it all it is is to draw the audience in you know there's a degree of emotional manipulation there perhaps and you yeah. kind of only realize after you come out of the film or, or finish the book yeah that it was all surfaces perhaps yeah no i think that's it yeah something else that strikes me as a Um, a theme that runs through your writing is a very close attention to the things that tend to be overlooked generally the narrator of your story the haunted bicycle from the collection Mm. rule dementia says i've always been attracted by those things left unnoticed in the corners of our lives and it it seems to be almost a preoccupation of yours Is, is that fair to say yes it is yes yeah, I, I I don't know why that is, but certainly in terms of my ad, adult life, as far as back as I can remember, this is something that's interested me. You know, maybe it is this 
this kind of contrast that there is a kind of public life, you know, there's a screen to which we're all directed, like in the Bowie song, um, what is it, they ask her to focus on sailors fighting in the dance hall Mm -hmm. or whatever. So there's the thing that we're all asked to focus on. And then when you walk away from it, what can happen is because you're not in that thing you're supposed to be focusing on, you can feel that the world around you is, is nothing. It, it's, it's not that center of focus. It becomes drained of value in some way. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I've, I've noticed this contrast and it's made, made me think, well, why are those things supposed to be valuable and these other things not valuable, you know? Um, I think that's what it is. I suppose that's all the more true these days in terms of how algorithms work on all sorts of digital platforms uh, where you're directed towards things based upon how many Mm. people have already encountered them, which strikes me as quite a frightening thing. Yeah, I find it a bit worrying, to say the least. I realise that there's more than one side to this, but the, the internet generally, I... Well, this idea that everything is on the internet, I I find worrying. I don't think everything is on the internet, but people can be um, fooled into believing this is so. Mm. I very often look for things on the internet and don't find them, in fact, you know, funnily enough. So... This can create, again, the, the, the illusion that there are only certain things that exist and, and then the other things become ghosts, you know. Mm. Funnily enough, my interest is returning to the idea of ghosts as well, uh, for probably for reasons, related reasons. It's obviously something that, that speaks to me as well, this focus on the, on the overlooked, given that that's almost the subject of this particular podcast trying to give renewed attention to to writers that that have been forgotten or perhaps haven't reached an audience in english one thing that really interested me is this overlap perhaps between that which is overlooked and that which we are afraid to look at or Mm. what we consciously or unconsciously ignore um yes do you think there's a strong connection between the overlooked and the horrific there is a connection and one of the most obvious connections is death okay let's take the image of that the screen we were talking about earlier Mm. This screen, really, it's like a vision of immortality because these are the stars here and so on and this is what you have to aspire to and, and, and so on. So it's a vision of immortality. So then what lies outside of that is this kind of wasteland. You know, you, you go home to your, after you're going to the cinema, say, to your mildewed flat somewhere and this is not (laughs) not part of that 
promised land or, or, or what have you. So it's fallen outside of immortality. Mm. And, and, and you can see the decay and, and the dilapidation. You can feel you, it losing its grip on the, the bright future, you know. And, and what lies at, at the end of that is death and decay. Uh, the, you know, the, the realization of one's own demise and the decay of the body and and so on, and going back into the earth. And, you know, the, the earth is, is the home of the nameless, really, worms and all sorts of things like this. Mm. So I do, I do think that these things are linked, because horror tends to deal with death. I think there are kinds of horror which don't have as strong or conscious a connection with the idea of the overlooked or the obscure. Mm. The, the more maybe the more sensationalist kinds of horror but in general horror if it's sincere it is there to confront what we're afraid of and a lot of what we're afraid of is losing our grip on life and sliding into a kind of um, a devouring nothingness you know like mm. an a nothingness with insect legs or something like this, you know. Your new novel, Graves, does deal with certain things that people might find objectionable or with things that they might not want to think about mm. or, or look at. Yeah. I was wondering why you chose to place them so centrally within, your, within the novel. I think there are a number of different reasons why people might what find the novel repulsive or objectionable. I mean, I, I know that this is not pure vanity on my part. I, people have all, already, so <laughs> I, I, I know this, this can happen. It's, it's a funny kind of thing. When, when I started getting the idea for the novel, I have a, rem- a memory of talking about it to a friend we'd just seen a budget opera thing of the the uh, opera adaptation of Goethe's Sorrows of Young Werther mm-hmm. we were having a meal and I remember talking to her about the, this novel that I had the idea for I think I must have started writing notes at that time I guess that was about 2013 this is my guess it seemed to me that I could feel in society some sense of denial in a very very broad way mm. And this novel, to me, it was like the return of the repressed. That's how it felt to me, Uh, which is, of course, the Freudian phrase, the the thing that you don't want to think about. Mm. And there are Frankenstein-like themes in, in the novel. And I think Frankenstein is another example of this where... You know, there's the phrase that's entered into the English language, I've created a monster, which seems to come from the um, Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm. And, the, you know, the, you've made a monster that what, the monsters come back to haunt you or whatever. The, these, this is all the return of the pr- repressed. And I do feel like, well, this, this, this happens a lot anyway with, with humans, but I began to notice this happening a lot more. I personally date it from my noticing it from about 2008, but I suppose by about 2013, I, I was beginning to feel that there was something un- 
unhealthy going on. This this was basically the motivation for the novel. Has Frankenstein always been an important work for you? Is it something that you return to? It is. It's been a long time since I've read it. I think I've read it maybe twice, but it's been a long time since I've read it. It's possibly about time I, I return to it. But there is something, as I recall, another way that it's relevant to Graves, of course, is that this is a um, very much a questioning of this idea of scientific progress. It shows, I think there's the beginnings... It, in Mary's Frankenstein of showing science as possibly the the rape of the earth where Dr. Frankenstein plunders materials from graveyards and so on. There, there is something, I mean, she was very young when she wrote that, but there's, it, she seemed to go quite deep with that somehow. It really resonates as an image of the idea of people playing God or someone playing God, and they actually don't know what they're doing, but they're, they're, while they're doing it, it's an obsession, they're, they're under the spell of this thing, and then at the end of it, they, they kind of come to their senses and think, oh, what mm. have I done, you know? And funnily enough, I mean, we're, we are, to some extent, in, in a moment like that culturally, where we're... We're looking at what we've done to the planet and thinking, you know, how how could we have done this? But because we've been un, under a spell, or you know, it's it's we've been so taken up in this this great work that, as it seems, that we're doing of mechanization and so on and so forth. It's not obvious that 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 this was even the wrong path to take, except that that we know that it's had calamitous results um, and that we can't it seems we can't carry on in the same way so there's this sense of waking up to, to what we've done through our pursuit of what seemed like a progress a, a great technological project it's interesting to me that your protagonist Damien who is perhaps someone who recognizes those those failings and the inevitable trajectory of them essentially comes to his his own kind of undoing victor frankenstein is someone who is trying to push forward to be part of this progress of humanity the the problem is that when uh, you see something wrong in the world that you can often think that what is wrong is out there and that it's their their fault those people Mm. over there and it seems to me very unlikely that if you see a problem like this something that's a big problem rather than I mean, there there might be, obviously, it's it's a bit hard to say that, that any problem you see is mm. your fault, but like a bit big social problem or something, if you see it and you just think it's the fault of those people over there, I kind of feel that that, that must be wrong somehow and that it's hard to, to wash one's hands in, entirely of, of any kind of guilt or responsibility. So probably the way the plot turned out is to do with my, my feelings in, in that direction, <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I would say. Most of his life was already finished, to use the decorator's term, with precisely this kind of colking. It was not so much 
that Damien's imagination led him on to forbidden realms. Again, no, there was something more dreadful than taboo at work here. It was that it was especially his imagination that did the leading, and any imagination that germinated and took form in England was incongruous and therefore risible by contrast with everything else. Against the foil of domestic violence and Alan Bennett, imagination was automatically that which is to be mocked. He feared that the aesthetic transplant he contemplated to fulfil his existence would not take, because he was rooted in English soil. Modern life is dull anywhere, thought Damien, but contemporary England is uniquely dull. He remembered a recent visit to the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford. No wonder the English had plundered the world for marvels and stolen the gods of the heathen idolaters. There was a lack at home that the English did not have the imagination to supply in any other way than theft. The things in that museum, an array of the bandicoot striped and the dodo feathered, the prehistorically natural and the medievally artificial, the numinously whimsical and the grinningly sinister, as if the cosmos were a great twisting reticulated crocodile crawling and clanking, every jointed limb and every scale prickly and glittering with terror and manic delight. And on that crocodile had been a single microbe of dullness, and the microbe had slain the crocodile, skinned it, and hung its skin on the walls to admire on a Sunday afternoon. There was in a case in the upper gallery, Damien remembered, a war helmet made of the poisonous spiny pufferfish. It had once belonged to a warrior of the Micronesian archipelago of Kiribati. Imagine going into battle with your stingray jerkin, your shark tooth studded mace and your spiny pufferfish helmet leaping from your boat onto the shore and straight among the ranks of your enemy. You would know you were born. No doubt the gods had really lived then, or the great spirit. The polytheism of such cultures was sometimes exaggerated, he knew. Damien sighed out the smoke he had inhaled. It had been the shrunken heads that had attracted him to the Pitt Rivers Museum. They did not strictly fit in with his thanatophilia, he persisted with the word, because they seemed to imply restless rather than restful spirits, but he was quite prepared to make what was, after all, only a slight detour from his usual interests for these. Prepared, of course, suggested the attitude in advance of the event. When he actually found the shrunken heads, he was a little disappointed. There was, 
it was true, a fascination to them, a kind of repugnantly mellow nausea at being in the presence of something that seemed to suspend the laws of morality, the moral equivalent of the disorientation of a suspension of the laws of physics. The same question arises in both cases. Is this real? Yes, they were, and blinking did not change this. There was also a satisfying gnome-like appearance of evil. Curious, Damien reflected, as these were supposedly the victims of the monstrous deed rather than the perpetrators. But being the victim of any such extreme act as this tends to confer an aura of evil, or so he theorised. Still, part of the reason he kept looking was because he wanted something more, something unbearable perhaps, something that would haunt him. It was then that something occurred that made him chuckle inwardly. A woman, perhaps in her late thirties, with one of those middle-class accents that make their owner sound very busy and capable, was approaching down the aisle accompanying her son, who must have been, Damien guessed, about eight, perhaps younger. Shrunken heads, she was saying. Right. Let's see. Down on the right. Ah, look, here we are. The young boy, like Damien, had wanted particularly to see the heads. With her hands on his shoulders, the mother positioned him before them. Her left hand still on his left shoulder, she began to point at the jars with her right, explaining with that capable voice, as if she were not reading the details for the first time from the notices next to the jars. Damien could tell, though the boy barely moved, that he was impressed. Impressed in what way, he was curious to find out. The boy could not have been listening to his mother. Without waiting for her to pause, he began slowly to shake his head, and in a voice of infantile dismay said, I don't like it. Don't like it, his mother repeated, looking him in the face from above. Spooky. The boy nodded. Efficient in assessing her child's desires and needs, she immediately led him away. That, thought Damien, is instinct. Instinct and imagination. However much or little he understood about death, the boy knew when something was malevolent. Damien envied him. As long as children could be unbearably spooked by shrunken heads in glass cabinets, dullness had not entirely prevailed. But was it too late for Damien? The subtitle of the, the novel interested me as well. You, you called it a 
distressing novel. Yes. Could you comment on your reasons for choosing that particular <laughs> adjective? So funnily enough, this, this brings us back to Cafu. You know, I, I can't remember the exact moment that I decided to use that subtitle. So uh, there, are, there are things in, involved that I can't remember now, but I was rereading the biography of Cafu by Edward Seidensticker, and it talked about one of Cafu's literary mentors who wrote kind of what was trashy fiction for the time, and it it, it was a a genre that was called um, distressing fiction, you know, or distressing Mm. tales or novels or... And, um, of course, that, that's a translation of the Japanese phrase. And, unfortunately, I can't remember the Japanese phrase at the moment. But th- So these would be melodramatic and there'd be all kinds of, well, sort of lurid and melodramatic. And partly I like the idea of reviving obscure genres. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that was at play. Also, it's quite a gothic idea to have a, a subtitle like that. Even I suppose it, it's also a, a, a warning, possibly humor, hu- humorous warning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I looked up the etymology of the word distressing. Yeah. And it comes from a verb meaning to to stretch apart mm. or to yeah to break apart. And I was wondering if that could be some manner in in which you hope to stretch your readers conceptions or stretch your reader readers sensibilities to a degree yeah i I think that's a a fair interpretation and in fact there is there is a section there that talks about welbeck and talks about his novels doing something very like that Mm. actually so i think that's an appropriate reading of the subtitle yes you you also mentioned gothic a moment ago i I wonder if you could uh, um, tell me about your relationship with the Gothic, perhaps both as a, a reader and a writer. Has it always had a kind of fascination for you? Or Yes, as, as long as I've known of the existence of something called the Gothic, yes, it's definitely fascinated me. And I've thought of it as something different to horror, although there is a crossover. So to, to give an example of something that is gothic but not horror, uh, Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast trilogy mm-hmm. is very definitely gothic, but it's not horror. I mean, there are horrific episodes in it, such as, um, I think it's Flay gets eaten by owls mm-hmm. <laughs> or something <laughs> at one point. Things like this happen. But, yeah, even just saying that, that is such an image of the gothic. Mm. If there's a kind of drama I love, it's that kind of thing where it seems symbolic in, in its over-the-topness. Mm-hmm. This guy's e- eaten by owls. But it, exactly what it means, it's hard to say, but it sticks in your mind somehow. Mm. It, it, it's like a dream or something that echoes in your head. So the, the things I associate with the gothic are decay, huge castles, ancient histories, secret passages, Mm -hmm. and obsession as well, people with strange obsessions. Do you think that style, it can also be a part of it, a kind of ornate quality to to Mm. style? And I wonder if you're, you're conscious of including that within your own writing or... So, yeah, I, I don't know if this is giving away too much in terms of mechanics, but, yeah, so the, the first chapter, 
so to speak, of graves is in the Gothic style. Um, it's a very short chapter. And a very beautiful one as well, if I may say so. Thank you, <laughs> yes. And this was kind of, okay, I, I, you know, like, I, I, want, I want to set the tone, this is it. And I realised after I'd written that, that I thought there's no way I can write the whole thing like this if I set it in the contemporary world, which I want to do, mm. addressing certain contemporary themes and issues. So I realised I, I had to do something about that. And I had Damien, the character himself, confront ideas of gothic aesthetics there's a there's a kind of hint that there's a war of aesthetics going on to some extent between the the, the modern world w- which won't allow this uh, or, ornate dramatic way of looking at things or way of being uh, so a war between that the, the contemporary world and the this sort of gothic sensibility underneath mm. So that's the way I dealt with it. I thought, I can't write the whole thing in the Gothic style, so there, there has to be a kind of war of aesthetics going on at some level in, in this novel. That war of aesthetics you, you speak of, we can maybe think of it more broadly as well as being perhaps representative of a clash between different kinds of worldviews, mm. between perhaps a scientific view of the world mm. and something more imaginative or reflective i i would say that this novel and and quite a lot of your writing seems to decry an an overly scientific view of the world um Mm. do you feel that we are burdened by this this view in some sense yes yes i do for me this is something deeply instinctive which i've felt for as long as I can remember really and I'm increasingly aware that other people don't necessarily feel this way yeah it's very it's a very peculiar thing I think that the scientific worldview somehow evacuates our environment of meaning and of life and I think it does so illegitimately the the thing is it doesn't have to do so and I've been trying to work out recently why it does so and I think there are historical cultural reasons why it does but I'm I'm not sure at what point these factors become operative you know whether they become operative as soon as the scientific method is applied or whether they become operative at some later point Mm. I would guess it's at some later point because as far as I understand it scientific scientific method is just that uh, a method Mm. But it's still a kind of open question for me at what point the factors that evacuate our, our world of value, let's say, at what point in the, the process they, they become operative. But certainly people who are popularizers of science, for instance, or, um, or people who speak in favor of science, very often also espouse materialistic views which I think are harmful in the sense that they are dogmatic overly dogmatic well i i think you know the these are big questions but i i can't so far i i can't help thinking that they are instrumental in what we see of the destruction of our planet Mm. because they, it seems to me, they don't allow for the pursuit 
of other things apart from power, um, possession of material wealth and so on. Now, of course, there, there are, this is not to say that people who actually profess materialistic views act in a materialistic way. This is one of the strange things about humans is you, you, you can have such a thing as a reverse hypocrite who, you, you know, you have hypocrites, we all know that, but you can have reverse hypocrites who espouse what can be taken as nev- negative views but actually don't act as if those views are true. So they might be espousing the view that uh, there is nothing beyond what can be measured scientifically, but they nonetheless act as if there are things beyond what can be measured scientifically. Mm. For instance, such as justice. I mean, you could, I don't see how you could measure something like justice scientifically, but I think most people are interested in the idea of justice being maintained in some way or another. Do you think that this divergence from a dominant scientific narrative about reality is related to Damien's understanding of of death and Damien's fascination with death in in the novel? And I was wondering what you think makes that so unique in him. Yes, it, it certainly is. He's a nurse... So he has medical training, which means, of course, scientific knowledge. So it's not that he's anti-science, but uh, again, there's a materialistic worldview which which usually professes to be the scientific worldview, whether it is or not. And this is something that he very much is reacting against. To, to me, he was kind of an easy character to write, maybe a bit too easy. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but I have the impression that at the moment there is not the very visible image of something like the angry young theist, right? Mm. The, the, the image we have is, is like an angry young atheist or something like this, right? But I know people like this, right? Mm. And I think they're maybe not that visible at the moment in terms of, I don't know, uh, popular culture or literature or, or, or what have you. Certainly, I don't see this kind of character portrayed much, although to me, it's, it's like, he's like a composite of people I know well. Let's put it that way. Coming back to some of the things we were talking about earlier in terms of where we have been led by technological progress and a materialistic view of the world against which Damien is reacting, of course. I've noticed in in your work recently uh, building engagement with environmental issues, with the crisis point we seem to have reached, more broadly perhaps the destruction and suffering we cause as a as a species and you've also published on the subject of antinatalism as a, as a movement in um, living in the future magazine yes i was interested to see that you claim in that essay that these two things though timely are perhaps essentially separate from each other does that mean that for you antinatalism is primarily based on philosophical or even logical grounds rather than 
being a straightforward reaction to the problems caused by the worldview I was speaking of. Yes, I I think there there is a connection between those problems and antinatalism, but I feel like I haven't yet dug deep enough to get to what the, that connection fundamentally is. So having not got that deep, I suppose I have to say that, that antinatalism is to me a it not a social response or something mm. like this but yes a more like a philosophical position although quite a practical one in in a certain sense i mean an, antinatalism uh, is actually something that goes way way back really mm. and i suppose i um, i'm i'm caught between certain very large forces in in the psyche of the human race um one of those forces is earthly survival which obviously includes procreation and an, another is well a, a kind of disillusionment but not for me a nihilistic one although it's related to nihilism certainly uh, i i've i've gone through a nihilistic period in my life i i'm certainly not a, a nihilist now if if you look at traditions religious traditions such as um, buddhism christianity and and others i i'm a bit more familiar with those two than mm. the others you will see this strain within them of disillusionment with earthly life basically so in in buddhism when 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 the buddha had his moment of awakening he he said something like um, housemaker I have seen you, your house will not be rebuilt again. In, in other words, the, the house being the, the earthly body, he's not going to return to this house. He, he's going to escape the, the, the rounds of reincarnation. So this is an, an impulse to escape earthly existence which seems to me very much in keeping with the antinatalist impulse. But the, the, the funny thing is, the same traditions, Buddhism, Christianity and others, also have this affirmation of earthly life. Mm. Well, it's perhaps more, perhaps more obvious in Christianity than it is in Buddhism, where the earth, the, the world really, not just the earth, the, the world being synonymous with the universe, is the divine creation, you know. And so there's a strange tension there between the disillusionment with this earth and the recognition in it of something divine, I suppose. And I, I feel that that tension quite strongly and I suppose for for whatever reason I'm someone who hasn't been able to commit myself in that weighing of the balance to the idea of completely affirming earthly existence. Yeah. It does seem to be a, a point on which you differ from lots of other writers and thinkers on antinatalism you, you seem to eschew this notion that human beings labor under the illusion of selfhood when in fact mm. they're self-conscious nothings you seem to find something more worthwhile in this mm. notion of selfhood or consciousness yeah yeah no that's that's right and i've i've, I've long felt that 
And I've never felt the no-self kind of doctrine, I've never felt that to be very persuasive for some reason. I mean, you know, I, I have friends and so on who have spoken to me about this. For instance, the, just to give an example, um, a conversation with a friend who is either Buddhist or Buddhist-leaning, talking about the question of the self and telling me how he looked into it and tried to find the self and couldn't find it. You know, where is it? I, I can't find it. But that is completely unpersuasive to me because I, <laughs> I can. Mm. I, you know, I do. And I, I wonder whether we're using the word self to indicate the same thing here or not. It feels like maybe we're not. It's a strange kind of thing. And this, this becomes uh, clearer to me in the second person because when when we look within it's it's easy in a way to see a see a void somehow Mm. because because we can't see something solid when you're relating to another person you know say you've got friends i don't know michael and jane or whatever you're you're not going to mistake michael for jane you know Mm. You won't do that. You know when they're here, you know when they're not here, and you, in some sense, know who it is you're talking to. Of course, you, you, you don't know them exhaustively and, and so on. But I've never found this idea of no self-persuasive. It, it is a very interesting question, and I'm not saying it's an easy question for all kinds of reasons, but I suppose the one thing that cements it for me is that when I say cements it, one thing that puts the burden of proof onto the no-self people, as far as I'm concerned, is that for me, the question of self is foundational to morality, because we we have to treat people as if there's a self there. The kitchen, he decided, was the place to go. There were enough people here that their separate conversations could not be easily distinguished until he moved into the orbit of one or the other. What he felt as he passed among them, he thought, was amoral agency rather than diffident restraint. But if this was so, the frictionlessness of the condition left him almost as helpless to instigate conversation. Instead, spotting two unopened cans of Jivietz by the sink, he walked over, cracked one open and took a slurp. After the alcohol, he would drink some water, he decided. Having made the beer his own with a few swigs, he turned to face the room. A tall girl with mousy blonde hair in a twiggy-esque bob cut was standing close by. Catching her eye by chance, he nodded. She returned the nod, so he extended his hand, which she accepted. The handshake seemed an odd formality in this situation, but Damien tried not to worry too much that he was acting in an unnatural manner. He noted that her eyes were an unusually pale shade of green. Damien, he said. She leaned in to hear him better. Sorry? Day, uh, Jason. My name's Jason. Oh, I'm Emma, she said, and gave a brief single nod and smile 
as if happy to confirm and have understood this simple personal fact. Most of the significant movement in Damien's being was currently in his eyes and his mind as he assessed and reassessed the figure before him. They spoke over the music about indifferent things so that signs of intelligence and special meaning had to be looked for not so much in words as in inflection, facial expression, even in pauses. Sure enough, she was human, a fact always, or almost always, at least novel and enigmatic enough to elicit from Damien when, as now, he was paying attention, a few flickers of admiration but there was something very odd, which was to say very ordinary, about this girl. I want to experience new things, she was saying. This year I climbed a gasometer. Climbed a gas meter? Damien, for a moment, formed a puzzling picture of Emma standing on a chair in the hallway of a house and pulling herself up by means of the meter affixed to the wall. Sure enough, that would be an unusual experience, technically speaking, but he was not sure it would be an interesting one. A gasometer, you know, where they store gas. Oh, yes, I know, you, you climbed one. Yes, good, isn't it? Damien nodded, yes, yes. Emma gave the same short nod of happy confirmation she had given earlier when she had told him her name. She seemed to do this to punctuate the attainment of each small point of understanding that appealed to her. Yes, she continued, and next year I want to ride an alpaca. Damien nodded as if in unfolding appreciation of this idea, but could not quite nod his way to a convincing conclusion. Do you know what my resolution was this year? Emma asked. Uh, no. To learn one new brilliant song each day. Learn to sing or to play. No, just to listen to. Do you know any? Uh, do you know Portishead? No, I haven't heard of them. I recommend Wandering Star. It was the only Portishead song title he could remember at the moment. Wandering Star, Portishead. I'll remember that, thank you. That's okay, it's a good song. What about you? Did you make any New Year's resolutions? No, I... I just... The only thing I did do was I made a resolution never to tell the truth for the entire year. Really? Yes, it's a very difficult resolution to keep. It makes you realise how lazy it is to tell the truth all the time. Wait... Do you mean you're lying now? Well, as I said, it's a difficult resolution to keep. So you've broken it? I suppose I have. 
Emma gave another of her short, single nods, but this one lacked the happiness of its predecessors. She looked uncertain, even a little injured. A wave of enormous remorse and pity engulfed Damien, and he was unable to speak. Excuse me, said Emma, I'm just going to talk to my friends. Of course. She gave a smile afflicted with the same injured uncertainty as her nod had been, and walked away. Damien took another swig of lager and decided he needed to go outside for a cigarette. Closing the door behind him, he found himself alone in the garden. He placed his beer on the windowsill, took out his tobacco and Rizzlers and began to roll himself a smoke. A strange afterimage of Emma haunted his mind as his fingers worked. How could he have communicated with her? She would live an entire life sealed off from him. Was anything beyond the brief conversation they had engaged in possible between them? That injury, that had hinted at possibilities but the hurt that suggested a life beyond the immediately visible was precisely what foreclosed any entry to that sweet world. Even these thoughts were preposterous. But how did a girl without transcendence walk and talk and get hurt like that? She surely wasn't a bubble, was she? Her afterimage in his mind, tiny, determined, climbed the tall narrow ladder up the side of the gasometer. She did it for no one but herself. Slowly her spelt, humorless figure ascended to an independent triumph in which no one would share, not even God. Damien felt like crying. He tried to, but was unable. He finished rolling his cigarette, lit it, and took a drag. The words of the song were repeating in his head in a hypnotic, insistent loop. Wandering star, your tomb the universe, the blackness, the darkness, forever. She would listen to the song, perhaps. Perhaps there was that and she would know not everything he had said was a lie. The blackness, the darkness, forever. There were no foxes in the garden now, but he forced himself to finish his cigarette, despite the cold and despite finding no more enjoyment in the burning tobacco. I wanted to ask you also about the importance of place and uh, the settings in your fiction. I mean, Graves is very much a, a London novel. I yeah. wondered how important it, it was to you that it takes place in London. Um, reasonably important. Since moving to London, I have wanted to write a London novel. 
in a way, I don't feel like Graves is the 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 London novel mm. that 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 I kind of had in mind. But it's certainly a London novel, and I, I'm glad to have done that. I find setting quite difficult, actually. I'm not very confident about setting, let's put it that way. Mm. Even places I know quite well, I feel like I don't have enough grasp of them somehow. I I generally don't feel like I have much of a grasp of reality, (laughs) so this is is the problem. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I I am interested in in place. It's just, it's a strange kind of thing. It's just, maybe it's this this kind of thing that I, I wonder if there's only one real timeline, right? So that a work of fiction is necessarily, if there are events in it that didn't actually take place, it feels like maybe this can't be the place where I'm setting it or something like that. Mm. So I, I do, I, I worry and I, I don't feel very confident about real world settings, but I, I want to use them more. Uh, I, I have it in mind, I suppose, that any work of fiction is, is really, it's a, it's a parallel universe. It's not necessarily this London, it's, it's just very similar. <laughs> it is something that you, you explore in a recent collection of poetry and travel writing. Quento, you have to help me with the pronunciation. Is it yeah. I.I. Gaza? Almost. So I.I., that's correct. Mm-hmm. And it's ga- Gasa. Gasa. Yeah, uh, Gasa. Like, yeah, Gasa. And the, the, the Gasa part is actually from Casa, which means umbrella. Ah, okay. So you, you explore some of these ideas in that collection of writings, and I was particularly struck by one of the essays on local trains and place names in in which you speak of casting yourself on the mercy of personal muses the local local deities and hoping that they intercede on your behalf with universal muses um yes um so i i wondered if in your attempt to capture place if that in itself was was the more important thing or uh, is is the more important thing that this could occur anywhere when you write a fiction a work of fiction well place is place is a weird kind of thing the, okay so there are two there are two polarities let's say the the particular and the universal right and let's say philosophy deals with universals and particulars are dealt with by something else now, what specialises in particulars? I, I think art doesn't... Art deals with universals as well, but particulars... This is also a preoccupation of, of, of the artist because I think the artist is kind of midway between heaven and earth. If we take heaven as standing for universals, for instance, mm. and, earth, and earth for particulars. So there, there's a, a tension there of finding... the particulars because there's something really fascinating about particulars because they're odd Mm. (laughs) Um, and and that and that gives things interest and and flavor and so on and yet there is the fear that if it becomes too particular it we don't know what it means somehow and yet i suppose maybe i'm interested in pushing that going particular as as far as it can go into that oddness and and still 
having some sense of um, resonance or something. Speaking of uh, resonance, I loved I loved this moment in that particular essay when you describe. Mm-hmm the impact that simply the sounds of the names along this particular train line in Japan and another in England yeah. evoke in you seems to be almost entirely about a kind of personal personal resonance mm. that, that can't be replicated. Yeah, no, that's that's right. I, I think um, Hess, is it Hess or Hesse? I, I don't Hesse. Know yeah, Hesse. There's, there's a moment where he talks about this distinction, if I remember correctly, in the glass bead game, where he talks about maybe like a piece of music or something. It can make him think of, a, I don't know, a particular tree that he remembered. And, and that memory is not essential to that piece of music um, but for him it's it's a personal association or something but but there's an, uh, an another as- aspect to the music which is more interpersonal n- not just related to him you know mm. um, I, I suppose yeah there, there are these different elements in different what dimensions or layers to how we relate to a, a work of art or how we create a work of art as well. If it's all on the dimension that only you understand <laughs> it, then it's, it's not going to work. But there is something mysterious about how a very personal image can communicate things, and I'm not sure we, we really know how that works, but that's, I don't know, one of the great things about art or something like that, you know. As well as being a, a writer, I'm right in saying you're also a publisher. Yeah, so I've been involved with Chormu Press, yes, yes. Yeah. I, I was wondering if there are writers working today mm. who you think people should be reading. I mean, not necessarily just from Chormu, but uh, in terms of your own interests. Yes, well, generally, I think people should read living writers. Now, I, I, I do understand why people don't do it so much, because in the world of writing, it takes a very long time for someone to gain a reputation and people have limited time and they want to read those with the most secure reputation. But there's something interesting about reading something regarding which there's no settled critical opinion as yet. Mm. So you you really just have to make up your mind. You know, this is something that's just come out. It's written by a living author. It's, in that sense, it's living. You know, everything about it is still to be decided. And I I think there's something um, interesting about that. So, yeah, Chomu's been on a bit of a hiatus for a year or so. None of us are full-time, so this kind of thing's inevitable. So at the peak of Chomu, I I was reading a lot of submissions, and I would have been able to maybe give a lot more to names off the top of my head, but it's a bit harder for me at the moment. But certainly one one of my favourite living authors is someone we've published through Chormu, which is Justin Isis, whose work is not nearly as well known as it should be. I'd 
urge anybody listening to this to to read Justin's work. I mean, I I'd like them to look at the Chormu catalogue generally because there's I don't think we've published anyone who isn't worth reading. I hesitate to pick out just a few names, right? But it's true. I I you know inevitably I I will rate some writers better than others mm-hmm. people don't read enough poetry i think we we published jeremy reed he he's a, a a veteran of the scene really a very interesting poet now not published by chormu not on chormu's catalog there's a bulgarian writer called zdravka evtimova i i've no idea if i'm pronouncing that correctly but well anyway i i've I've read some of her work. I'm not sure how much I should say, but I I hope to be part of. Well, I'm I'm currently um, in involved in in something to to do with a, a, a collection of of hers, and um, therefore in a kind of editing capacity had to read and reread her stories mm. and um, they're very it's interesting they're very simple on the surface, but they they stand up very well to rereading that's that's one of the things i i notice as an editor it, you've got to be able to reread something you know and um there's got to be something chewy there yeah <laughs> that that you can keep chewing and 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 getting something out of so yeah i would recommend her work it might be difficult to look up her name from from my pronunciation there. So The Blood of a Mole is one of her stories. If you do an internet search for that, you should be able to find her. I can also include um, a link to her name in the show okay. notes as yes. well and to the Chomu Press page as well. Yeah. So, yeah, there there are certainly writers that I'm interested in. I mean, for instance, I've collaborated with some uh, um, as as well, uh, Brendan Connell and m- myself, Brendan Connell, Justin, we, we wrote a novel together, three of us called The Cutest Girl in Class, and we, I think we're each very different kind of writers, so that was interesting, but Brendan is, well, very, very well read for a start, and, I, you know, I think this comes across, um, in what way? It, it comes across... Mm, uh, I'm not going to be able to finish this sentence. It comes across. I'll put a full stop there. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But um, I would especially recommend of his work. I think my favourite so far is Clark. Uh, that that might not be a title that immediately grabs people's attention, but it, it's it's about a um, oh, where's he from? He's from South America somewhere. I forget which one now. And he he's an actor and takes an American name and becomes involved in the Italian film industry. It's a great uh, depiction, basically, uh, of the artistic life. I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the, the the kind of... Uh, I, I, I felt that I recognised it as a depiction of the artistic life. Mm. It's uh, something very um, definitive about it in those terms. Thank you, Quinton. I'll certainly be following up on some of those recommendations. Let me just say that I, I completely agree with you about Justin Isis, who I think is an absolutely mm. fascinating writer, mm. um, very, mm. very idiosyncratic. And I, I, I read both of the collections published by Tormu with, with mm. great interest. The, 
really quite something and i'm very interested to observe the direction he will go in as well he seems an unpredictable writer which is yes yeah and may i ask actually how you first came across his writing was it a submission simply or no it, it wasn't it wasn't a submission we both posted this was back in the days of live journal i don't know if live journal's still going but anyway this was when it was popular i suppose and we both posted well i i certainly posted comments under the blog of momus um i I don't know if you know momus i don't know um scottish musician singer songwriter Mm -hmm. uh, whose real name is nick curry anyway so justin saw some of my comments there about japanese literature and possibly some other things and he wrote me a private message via live journal which i've saved for posterity somewhere (laughs) but so I I wrote back um, with my email address and so on the message was something along the lines of uh, I can't believe that there's someone interested in the same things I am Mm. kind of thing Mm. you know Tanizaki Doctor Who and some other things like this anyway so we started a correspondence and fairly soon he sent me some of his writing and uh, it was quite a surprise really you know because it was absolutely fully formed Mm. (laughs) and um, you know I have to admit I sometimes dread reading the things that people send me if, if they want an opinion because well you know Often it's not really quite there. But yeah, this was really good. Totally original voice, fully there. So we eventually started up a a kind of a a blog scene that is, I think, still online. And we called that Chormu. And then when the press started up, we took the name from the blog scene. So that's, that's kind of how it happened. I have a, a, a final question. It's, it's perhaps a rather silly one, but one that I, mm. I had to ask, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a story in your collection, Morbid Tales, called The Two-Timer, yeah. in which the narrator develops the ability to stop time. And it reminded me so much of a, pro- of a children's television program that I, I used to watch mm. as a child called, called Bernard's Watch, where mm. a child has this partic- particular yeah. ability. I wondered <laughs> if it was something that you were aware of, because the two-timer seems, seems almost Bernard's Watch with a, an 18 certificate. <laughs> Uh, No, funnily enough, I haven't heard of Bernard's Watch. I'm going to have to look that up now. No, the the two-timer thing came about because a friend of mine, basically, he said, let's both write a story on the theme of stopping time, someone with the power to stop time. And this was, as it happens, a theme that interested me. So I... I did. We both did, and and that was the result. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's a story that, that um, not many people have mentioned to me for some reason. It it, it seems to go under the radar a bit. But uh, oh, it's it's actually one of my favourites. Hmm. Yeah, I, I really responded to that one, and uh, it's of a very different character to to Bernard's watch, but this central idea <laughs> is is the same. Um, yeah, I see. Bernard tends to learn some kind of moral lesson and uh, learn to be a good boy each time he stops t- time. <laughs> 
Yeah, I see. Yeah, it's kind kind of similar in a way. <laughs> in a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, Quentin, yeah, I would just I'd just like to thank you for joining us on Sherd's podcast and to urge anyone listening to pick up the book mm. Graves, which has just been published by Snugly Books. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, th- thank you very much for having me, and um, yes, it's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sherd's Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show and you want to support us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We're now also available on Spotify. And we'll see you next time when we'll be discussing The Birds by Tariai Vessos.